they've more or less expressed the essence of uh, the message which we've tried to convey since the beginning of this conference uh, to this very day. Uh, it was the characteristic of the Prophet Sallallahu uh, once when he uh, spoke, he said um, to one of the companions, he said, uh, He said, be in this world as if you were a stranger or just a wayfarer passing through. And it was the characteristic of the Prophet that he was known as being Jawam al-Kalam. He was a man of few words, but a very broad, comprehensive meaning. And I say this simply because of the fact that the deen itself, if we wish for it to spread to the ends of the earth, if we wish for it to flourish in this nation and elsewhere, then we ourselves have to take along with us the characteristics which the Prophet ﷺ taught to his companions and by which they themselves were able to influence entire nations of people. If we look amongst us today, we see a broad expanse of humanity a varied spectrum of people from a variety of nations and backgrounds. And this in itself is an indicator of the strength of the message of Islam. Because of the fact that if we look at the history of the first people who went to nations which today are predominantly Muslim, we find that the majority of nations on earth today which have predominantly Muslim populations, many of them are outside of the Arab-speaking world. Yet the majority of people within those nations, of course, are Muslimin. And they may not necessarily have the characteristics of the Arabs, but nonetheless, you find within those nations many Masajid, and many followers of the faith. Because in this you find a great lesson for us today. And the lesson is, when we begin to think, when we begin to look at who it was that actually took the faith to, for example, a nation like Indonesia, which is the most populous Muslim nation on earth today, we found that the first Muslims who went to that area were basically traders from the southern part of Yemen. And it wasn't uh, because of the fact, or I should say, a, they didn't have a linguistic communication, a linguistic means of communication with the people. They didn't share the same language with them. So what was it that actually convinced the people about the truth of Islam? In many cases, you find it was because of the way in which those companions, the way in which those early travelers, the way in which they carried themselves, their khuluq, their means of trading, 
their fair dealing, their righteousness. It was those factors which, for a great extent, convinced the people that there's something different about these groups. There's something different about these people. We've never encountered people like that, this before. Because you find that in many nations, and this is one of the great differences between Islam and many of the so-called colonial powers, which went to various places of Africa and Asia, is that when you find, that, for instance, that when the French, when the British, when the Italians, when they went to various countries within the world, you find that one of the very first things that they forced the people to do was to change their language. And this is why you find, for instance, in Africa, a large number of nations where the national language is French or English or Italian. Yet you find within the Muslim nations that they still retain a lot of their cultural characteristics and above all, they still retain their language. Even though Arabic is spoken there, even though the people themselves are Muslimin. So this in and of itself is a great lesson because one of the major attacks that you find presently being launched against the Muslims is that we forced people to adopt Islam. When you find, when this is actually examined, it's usually the other way around. That the French, for instance, were in Algeria for 137 years and they used all of their bullets, they used all of their priests and missionaries and all of their French Franks in order to adopt the people into Christianity. And this was actually a war which took place there. It wasn't between, as they say, uh, the Arabs and the French. It was between the Muslims and the Christians. And after that period of time, you can find today hundreds of thousands of French missionaries who adopted Islam, but you cannot count on one hand Muslims who adopted Christianity. So the fact of the matter is, is that it was actually the non-Muslims who used all of their weaponry and all of their means of subversion and torture in order to convert people. But the Muslims who, by good character, by righteous conduct, and by the message of La ilaha illallah, that they were able to turn people towards righteousness and by the mercy of Allah cause them to enter into the deen of Islam. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said, uh, to enter into the deen in crowds. So if we wish, for instance, for us to embody that same characteristic, that is to cause the nations of, of people to enter into the deen in crowds, then we ourselves are going to have to take on those same characteristics as the early generations of the Muslims. Because you never know, for instance, how it is or what it is that's going to cause your neighbor, especially in a nation like this, where we find that even though we have large numbers of Muslims, we are still 
a minority. You never know what it is that's going to cause that person to think, to wish to investigate into what is Islam. In the United States today, you find that one of the major things that they talk about or that they've been talking about for the last few weeks are all of the so-called massacres that take place every few weeks where some person will go in with a gun and shoot up a whole bunch of students or children or some of his next-door neighbors or his workers, etc. And they make it a big thing. They talk about it for weeks on end. Yet one of the things that they don't talk about is the fact that this past year you had more suicides than you had homicides. In fact, the figure was almost double. This past year in the United States, you had 19,000 homicides that took place. 19,000. But the rate of suicides within the country was 30,000. And they don't talk about that. It's become such a massive problem, in fact, that the Surgeon General has now listed it as being a major health problem. And the interesting thing is, is that they even did investigation to find out who it is that are doing these suicides. And they said it's basically affluent people past the age of 65 who are earning money within five and six figures. These are people basically who, according to the standards that have been established by Western society, have done everything according to the book. They've done everything in order to achieve the pinnacle of success. So why is it that they are up there killing themselves? And this doesn't even take into account the amount of suicide attempts. They said that last year that the amount of suicide attempts that took place was over 500,000. But they don't like to talk about that. The reason being that when you begin to focus in on those things, it shows, some, it shows actually a much bigger problem. Because even though these people have a lot of material success, even though they have a lot of money, etc., they still share amongst themselves a spiritual emptiness. And at the same time that they are experiencing this spiritual emptiness, you find them day and night saying that Islam is the enemy. Watch out for the Muslims. They are the ones, the walking time bombs. Watch out for them. And they are spending literally millions, billions, in order to fight against the deen. Yet at the same time, they are up to killing themselves. So the only way really in order to change a society, in order to offer them a means by which they can achieve success both in this world and in the hereafter, is for us in order to embody those same characteristics, which at the very least will cause people to think and to reconsider and to be able to turn, inshallah, to the deen of Islam. But we can't do it if we ourselves 
يعني don't embody that message. We can't do it if we wish to imitate the ways of a people who are themselves confused, who are themselves wishing to deny the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who are themselves opposed to the message of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So, we have to understand these things and inshallah ta'ala, likewise, work to support those individuals as well as those organizations which are actively working to steer people in the way or the path of the earliest generation of the Muslimin. وَقُولِ كُولِ هَذَا اسْتَغْفِرُ اللَّهُ وَلِيبُ لَكُمْ سُبْحَانَ اللَّهُ وَحَمْدِ اسْتَغْفِرُكُ وَيَتُوبُ إِلَيْكَ جزاك الله خيرا Now can I make an, uh, an urgent announcement for the Nigerian Jama'ah the, the brothers and sisters who came from the Nigerian community from Old Kent Road If you are here, inshallah your coach is outside and you have to meet by half past 11 For the Nigerian uh, Jama'ah from Old Kent Road Mosque in London Your coach is outside, meet by half past 11 So feel free to walk out anytime you, you, know, you need to, to pack your bags and so forth. Um, another announcement is, if you have parked cars on Manor Road between this hall, Villiers Hall, and Gilbert Murray Hall, if you have parked your cars on Manor Road between these two halls, we'd request you to please move them because five coaches are arriving for the, from London to pick up the London um, participants. And they need to park in those spaces in front of the, between the two halls. So if you are one of those brother or sister, then please uh, try and move those uh, cars if you can. But the London coaches are expected at midday, 12, so we have plenty of time, inshallah. And the other announcement I'll make right at the end of Dr. Bilal Phillips' uh, summarization, inshallah ta'ala. Jazakumullah khairan. Alhamdulillah. Wa salatu wa salam wa rasulillah. All praise due to Allah and may Allah's peace and blessings be on the last Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. My parting words can be found basically in the Quranic verse, Ya ayyuhal ladheena amanu, qu anfusakum wa ahlikum nara. Wa quduhan al-nasu wal-hijara. This verse is a verse which should cause us all to reflect uh, on the knowledge that we have gained here and on the responsibility that lies ahead of us. Allah here says, O oh, you who believe, protect yourselves and your family from the hellfire, whose fuel is human beings and stones. This verse should make us ponder over our situation here in England. Are we fulfilling what Allah has commanded us here? Are we protecting ourselves and our families, our children? Are we protecting them from the hellfire? The hellfire represents kufr. Deviation from Islam. There are so many young Muslims in the public school system today 
who have deviated, who are opposed to Islam in their actions, in their behavior, in their words, rebelling against their families. And so many wives and husbands you know, who are involved in all kinds of corruption. Many questions that have come up to us to be answered in the various seminars or the end of lectures, you know, point towards a large-scale corruption in the, among the ranks of Muslims. We are not fulfilling the commandment of Allah. So what is ahead of us? What is the solution? What is the way out? Alhamdulillah, we have come to the conference and we have gained some knowledge. Many people have been very appreciative and have expressed you know, the benefits that they have taken from the conference, from the various speakers who have come from different parts of the world to share knowledge with us. But ultimately, it is the building on that knowledge in ourselves, in our families, in our communities, that ultimately will make a difference. It is not just for us to come, to hear, to enjoy, and then we go back to the same old lives we were living before we came. This is the common practice. This becomes like a source of entertainment for us. And the speakers, you know, are entertainers. You know, this is the Islamic version, you know, of the pop shows. You know, we have the top of the pops. When you look at your sheet to see who's coming, who's going to be speaking. Oh, I like him. You know, <laughs> he's a nice speaker. He makes us laugh. And, you know, so. so we're coming for entertainment. You know, because if we consider... Two years ago, we had a conference and we were in the same situation. We have to ask ourselves, what has taken place in these last two years? Have we done anything concrete in our lives to make any kind of change or any kind of difference? Or are we coming back after two years, and there were two, a conference two years before that, are we coming back in the same position? With the same problems, with our mortgages and our family problems, and you know, we keep coming back hoping that somebody is going to say in the conference, Yes, mortgages are okay. You know? We asked it last time, we asked it the time before, and likely we're going to ask it the next time. Why? Because we are not about implementing this knowledge. Brothers and sisters, the lack of implementation of knowledge is a very, very serious state to be in. This is the maghdubi alayhim. Prophet Muhammad told us the maghdubi alayhim are who? The Jews that we speak about in Surah Al-Fatiha, we recite in our prayers. The maghdubi alayhim. They're the Jews. Why? Because... They had the knowledge, but they didn't act on it. Do you believe in a part of the book 
but you disbelieve in another part. We are told to enter into Islam completely. Not one foot in and one foot out. Not one foot in and one foot out. But these are the lives that we are living. We have one foot in Islam and we got one foot outside in Kufr. So many of the sisters, for example, come to the conference, they're you know, hijabed up and down. But once the conference is over, they're back to London, back to Birmingham, whatever. Then you couldn't believe this was the same sister you saw here in the conference. Yeah. Same thing with the brothers too. They come, they're wearing thobes, you know, everything else. They're you know, trying to be sunnah you know, for the conference. But as soon as the conference is over, they go back and back into their regulars, you know. This is not going to benefit us. This is going to be a curse on us on the day of judgment. We have to consider the state of Iblis. Iblis who had the knowledge. The knowledge of Allah. The knowledge of Allah's commandments. But when he was commanded to act on that knowledge, and he refused, he became cursed until the last day. Prophet Muhammad used to seek refuge regularly in dua, saying, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min ilmin la yanfa. O Allah, I seek refuge in you from knowledge which is of no benefit to me. That knowledge may be false knowledge, but it's also Useful knowledge which we don't apply. This is knowledge which is of no benefit. We haven't applied it so it was of no benefit to us. Instead, it becomes harm. So we need to look at the issues before us. The information we have gained should drive us towards addressing the fundamental problems facing the Muslim community here in England. And the two fundamental problems, as I perceive them, as you keep hearing me speak about in one way or another in the lectures, is that of the establishment of true Islamic communities and educational institutions by which Islam may be conveyed to the coming generations. These are essential for our survival. Islamic institutions of learning, schools for our children, instead of having the vast majority of our children in state schools, going astray, and all the problems that come along with it, they should be in Muslim schools. Not just schools of Muslim kids, because there are a number that have arisen over the last 10 years in England, schools of Muslim kids. But true Muslim institutions, Muslim schools, where the staff, the administration, you know, everybody is on the same mode of thinking. Realizing that this institution is an institution of learning 
which is blessed by Allah and they have a sacred duty of conveying Islam to the children in all aspects of their time within that institution. It's very, very important. Because, for example, one of the sisters related to me an incident that happened to her children. It's a sister who is from East Africa, from Kenya. She expressed to me she had some kids you know, in one of the Muslim girls' schools, a boarding school. And, you know, her kids, most of the kids in the school, you know, were, I shouldn't say unfortunately, were, you know, most of them are from sort of Pakistani, Indo-Pakistani backgrounds. And her kids going to the school were being teased by the girls in the school. They were being called burnt japatis. You know, they were, these are the kind of nicknames which were being, you know, and this is supposed to be, quote-unquote, a Muslim school. Mm. Alhamdulillah, the sister didn't take it sitting down. She went up to the school. She went up there in the morning and she gave circles for the girls to try to educate them to the wrongness of this kind of thinking. But what is happening is that those children are pulled out of state schools. Oftentimes, you know, parents, they put their kids in the state schools. And then when they see them going out, they say, we've got to do something now. Let's put them in a boarding school. And of course, they're going into those boarding schools carrying whatever they had in the state schools with them. I mean, I can't blame the kids. That's what they learned in the state schools. You know, maybe the British kids were calling them, you know, half-burnt japatis. So now anybody else who comes darker than them, they call them full-burnt japatis, you know. (laughs) So it's just like a, a natural process. You can't really blame them. We have to blame the parents. We have to blame the parents. So many institutions like this. There are many horror stories going on in even the Muslim schools, so-called Muslim schools that are rising. Because we are not really tackling the problem from the foundation. We have to work towards truly establishing communities and establishing schools where we can train the children right from the kindergarten level, preschool level, they're there, we bring them up a whole generation. Not throw them in at the last minute, you know, as a last ditch attempt to try to save them because they're going out of Islam. Because we, you can't save them when they reach those, those kind of ages. Even the schools with the best of intentions cannot deal with the problems that these kids bring with them. And all you have to do is look at much of the behavior, for example, of many of the little kids that are, you know, have come to the conference. You know? I mean, this, it is not really the kind of behavior you're going to expect from Muslim children in a Muslim conference. Also, we need to consider, as one of the suggestions made, that, you know, in future conferences that, you know, really a serious program, since so many people are bringing children, a serious program needs to be developed to help you know, educate and, and, and give the children something in the course of this. Not just babysitting, but actually educating. You know. But the job still falls in the hands of the parents. It's in our hands. We cannot expect, you know, a three-day conference to solve our problem. Nor can we expect a Muslim school to make our children Islamic. If we haven't done our groundwork, if we have not established Islamic households, then we cannot expect the schools to do it for us. So, 
we have no other alternative but to establish Islamic communities. Where such institutions will be a product of that community and not just something which is at odds with the rest of the community. The school stands, it is surrounded you know, by other Kafir institutions, Kafir neighborhood, you know, the children uh, are coming from Kafir type backgrounds, the school really is having very little effect. It is more, more surface, you know, we, we think because the kids maybe wear hijab at the school and whatever. So we have to seriously address this issue of community and work towards the establishment of Islamic communities in this country with the necessary institutions, first and foremost, educational, to make the difference, to fulfill that requirement which Allah put on us, protect yourselves and your families from the hellfire. Alhamdulillah, GMAS or Jamiyat Ihya Min Haji Sunnah has been working towards filling something of that gap, providing an, a venue by which some of these thoughts may be shared. We may come together and try to work towards uh, developing solutions. And this organization, Jamiyat Ihya Min Haji Sunnah, literally means the association for the revival of the way of the sunnah. The association for the revival of the way of the sunnah. This was the intent of the organization from its foundation. And this remains the intent. Revival of the way of the sunnah. And alhamdulillah, it has been through many phases in its development. Uh, there are times of struggle times of splintering, people backbiting, name-calling, discouraging people from you know, coming to uh, the conference, uh, identifying the founders and the working members of the Jamia as being deviant and, and having hidden agendas and all these other kinds of things. These things have happened. But alhamdulillah, the brothers and sisters have persevered. They have not allowed the negativities that are out there to destroy the fruits of their efforts. They have continued. And I pray that Allah give them the, the courage to continue, to give them the tawfiq to, to continue in this path because they represent across the country one of the few organizations, grassroots organizations, where the members are involved in circles all across the country. And at the same time, they have with them a sense of tolerance, tolerance of differences in views, where it remains within the way of the sunnah, minhaju sunnah, tolerance, which, inshallah, is the foundation for building community ultimately of rebuilding the brotherhood and the sisterhood which has been fragmented by nationalistic uh, baggage which people have inherited as well as personality 
conflicts and supposed ideological differences, but where in fact we have people promoting themselves in the course of trying to put down those who are working here and the people who come to to give information here, pass on the information, share knowledge with, 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 with themselves and with those who attend. You know, putting these people down and then really promoting themselves as the alternative. Themselves who have very little learning, have been very little, you know, had very little exposure to Islamic knowledge, etc. So it becomes a situation of the blind leading the blind. We have a letter, and I'll just read it to you. It's a, a nice letter which shows, alhamdulillah, you know, some of the change in awareness which is coming about. It says, Assalamu alaikum, I'm writing to ask forgiveness from brothers Ali Tamimi, Jamal Zarabozo, uh, Idris Palmer, Abu Muntasir, Dr. Bilal, Sheikh Suhaib, etc., for having believed the false da'wah of the jahil ones who warn against the conference and ones like this. Previously, I too branded these brothers as deviants, which was a slander. Now I'm doing my best to give da'wah to those who have caused so much fitna. I've been to conferences in Birmingham, etc. And they breed feelings of hatred and disunity. This conference has really promoted a feeling of brotherhood, which I only feel at the Leicester conferences. May Allah reward all of you, especially the family of Abu Muntasir, for your efforts. Please forgive me and ask Allah to forgive me for avoiding your talks for the past few years. I pray that many more will realize the evil of those who have caused fitna and destroy the da'wah as salafia Amin. I pray that the feelings expressed here by our brother or sister who wrote this, you know, are feelings which would spread and help to bring and to heal the wounds which have developed, you know, in the ummah and in the effort here, which has weakened that effort. And I encourage you, as all the speakers before me have encouraged you to support this effort. To support this effort. Without your support, the effort is doomed. Alhamdulillah, your support has come in the past and we ask you to continue to give that support. Whether it be financial support because you don't have the time or it be support through your own efforts that you share in the programs, you help to develop the circles in your areas, you help to circulate the materials, to sell the, the books, and etc., which are being produced by GMAS, these useful, very beneficial texts which are being produced, you know, to support that effort. This is not a, 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 a business. Nobody is living off the effort. When you go and look in the lives of all of the brothers who are involved, they all have their own jobs. You know, decent paying jobs that are taking care of themselves and their family. They're not gathering this sadaqah, this uh, economic support that you're giving and using it to live off, you know, themselves. You know, to provide for their families, etc. No. This is for continuing this effort. 
And I ask you, brothers and sisters, uh, not to hesitate. You know, we have given our full support from, from being here with the brothers. We, we know, as we said, that there are a lot of doubts out there people have raised. But you can see. You have heard. You have been here. We have not called anyone to hatred and to abandoning and to, to, to break ties. And this. No. We have called to the unity of Muslims. To respecting knowledge, respecting the scholars, seeking knowledge from the source, working together as Muslims, being tolerant of differences where these differences remain within the bounds of Islam. The Sahaba had differences amongst them. The Tabi'een had differences amongst them. And all of the scholars till today had differences amongst them. But they still worked together. When we invite people to follow the way of the Quran and the Sunnah, it doesn't mean that we are attacking the scholars of the past. You know, a, a note came to us before this, you know, saying, um, where is there a scholar uh, as great in the Ummah as Abu Hanifa? Can you name him for us? Because otherwise, don't criticize him. You know, the issue here is not about criticizing Abu Hanifa. Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik and the others were all scholars. Human beings who were not perfect. They made mistakes and they made a lot of correct decisions. We follow them in what is correct and we ignore or let aside what is incorrect. They were re rewarded for the, their incorrectness because they were striving to find what was correct. But if we know something is incorrect, then for us to follow it, there is no reward. It is sin to follow what we know is wrong. And what we are inviting people to is following the madhab of Abu Hanifa. If we ask Abu Hanifa, what was your madhab? Is he going to say my madhab was the Hanafi madhab? No. If we ask Imam Malik, what was your madhab? Is he going to say my, Maliki, my madhab was the Maliki madhab? Or Imam Ahmed, the, the Hanbali madhab? Or Imam Shafi'i, the Shafi'i madhab? No. None of them say this. They all will say, our madhab was the madhab of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. إِذَا صَحَّ الْحَدِيثِ فَهُوَ مَذْهَبِي إِذَا صَحَّ الْحَدِيثِ فَهُوَ مَذْهَبِي If the hadith is authentic from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, then that is my madhab. So we are not against the scholars. We support them. We follow them. We benefit from them. And we try to be on the same madhab that they were on. And this is the basic program of Ihya, Jamiyat Ihya, Minhaj Sunnah. This was the Minhaj of the Salaf. This was the Minhaj of the Sunnah. And this is the invitation. So, in closing, brothers, as I said, your support is needed. Don't hesitate. You are rewarded for whatever you give. As the brother quoted the hadith, مَا نَقَصَ مَالًا صَدَقَةٌ قَطْ Sadaqa will not decrease your wealth in any way, shape or form. It seems in quantity that you have less, 
But in Baraka, you have much more. Barakallahu fikum. Subhanakallahu. Jazakum Allah khairan.